Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. The Church of England has a new Archbishop of York, Stephen Cottrell. He was enthroned only last week, but already he's made quite an impression. Though, I'm sorry to say, not a good impression. Even before he took office... Archbishop Cottrell was in the headlines for revealing that Jesus was black, a piece of alternative history that dismayed those reactionaries who still argue that Jesus was Jewish, but must have delighted Black Lives Matter, of which Cottrell, who is previously Bishop of Chelmsford, is a huge admirer. As a former Anglo-Catholic, he knows how to genuflect, and he duly bobs away every time he hears the name of this creepy and explicitly non-Christian group of Marxist race-baiters. Cottrell is the 98th Archbishop of York. That's according to Anglican calculations, anyway. And like most of those, he began the ceremony of his installation by knocking three times on the door of York Minster with his crozier. Only this time there was a difference. He chose to knock on the inside of the minster door rather than the outside, explaining that it felt like the right thing to do in the circumstances. We wanted to show that the church is open to everyone and that we are here to support and help in these unprecedented times. He obviously thought it was a very touching, symbolic gesture. I'm afraid in my cynical way, I thought it was more like something out of Monty Python. Perhaps a lost scene from Monty Python and the Holy Grail, where some mad medieval bishop is saying, No, you fools, you've got to knock on the inside of the door or the plague will get us. And right after his enthronement, Archbishop Cottrell published an article in the Yorkshire Post, which I can only describe as a masterpiece of right-on vacuity. No platitude left unsaid. And you're probably thinking, oh God, he's already made up his mind about Stephen Cottrell and he's going to spend the next half an hour bashing the bishop and it's all going to be very tedious. But don't worry, I'm going to leave most of the commentary up to our regular guest on this podcast, Dr Gavin Ashenden, a former chaplain to the Queen. I showed Cottrell's Yorkshire Post article to Gavin and said, well, what do you make of this? And he told me. But then he also said that rather than just attacking the new archbishop, he'd like to put his appointment in context. And to explain why, not to mince words, it seems to be a disaster in the making for the Church of England. What struck me was that Cottrell, although he trained at St Stephen's House, which was once a bastion of spiky Anglo-Catholicism, doesn't come across as an Anglo-Catholic or anything else, apart from a straight-from-central-casting liberal prelate. And the Church of England already has two of those. It's got Justin Welby, who's supposed to be an evangelical, but it doesn't show, and Sarah Mullally in London, about whose churchmanship I don't know anything. It didn't used to be like this. There was traditionally a rather delicate balance between the theological beliefs of the Archbishops of Canterbury and York, and also the Bishop of London, who were supposed, at least approximately, to represent the different strands in the Anglican tradition. Now, with this appointment, they seem to have been completely homogenised. And at the top of the established church sits a triumvirate of highly politicised bureaucrats in mitres. 
but you've heard me bang on about these things before. So let's hear instead what a proper Christian intellectual, Gavin Ashenden, has to say about Cottrell's appointment and the missed opportunities for Christianity that it represents. Gavin's thoughts are so compelling, in fact, that I'm just going to shut up for a few minutes and let him do the talking. So I think if we're going to criticise Stephen Cottrell, we ought to suggest something that he should have said, should have seen, should have done. And before we look at the challenges that the Church of England faces at the hands of today's culture, the things it ought to be speaking to, what it can bring to the table to make things better, we probably ought to diagnose characteristics of Anglicanism that put it, I think, in a particularly weak spot. I mean, there are two things, I think, that are essential ingredients of Christianity that Anglicanism has difficulty with. And the first is the supernatural, and, and the second is what I'm going to call Gnosticism, but I'll try and explain that because I know it's a bit of a, a dirty word for some people, but it's essentially it's coming to know that is given to some people and not to others. So the problem it has with the supernatural is that Anglicanism inherits Protestant rationalism, and it's, it is really quite uncomfortable with the miraculous and with the supernatural. It was deeply overwhelmed by the intellectual snobbery of the German rational intellectual movement of the 19th century and, and always associates the supernatural, I think, probably with red-necked American fundamentalism because it's lost touch with the astonishingly powerful medieval mystic tradition that really, I think, is the proper home of the supernatural as far as our own culture is concerned. So the first thing is it, it's embarrassed by that, and that means because it doesn't do the supernatural, the metaphysical, it, it slips into the political much too easily. And the second thing it finds difficulty with is, is this idea of Gnosticism. All the way through the New Testament, you can't get away from the fact that there's something the Holy Spirit does which gets people to know, to, to know God, to recognise the soul, to recognise the new birth, the birth from above, to recognise the kingdom of heaven. And there's a division between those who know and those who don't know. Now, Gnosticism exists on a scale, uh, the kind of conspiratorial mad end, where only the truly special know. It's quite unpopular as a movement, but there is an element of the Gnostic in Christianity. And again, Anglicanism finds this very difficult, because after all, it's a state church, so it's there for everybody. But what if Christianity is not there for everybody, in the sense that there is a particular calling to those who get awakened within the faith, and not everyone does. Jesus constantly talks about this division between sheep and goats, the, the seed that grows and the seed that doesn't grow. Anglicanism is extremely uncomfortable with this and doesn't know how to manage it. It's particularly vulnerable, I think, to utopian political ideas because it can ditch this slightly Gnostic element. It can ditch the supernatural and move into a more pragmatic, functional, politicised religiosity where it's, it's more at home with its intellectual pretensions and with its perfectly proper ambitions to be a state church for the whole nation. So what are the things that... Christianity is facing that the Church of England ought to present to its surrounding culture. I think there are four particular areas that the Church of England and Christianity ought to address at this particular point of cultural crisis that we've arrived at. Uh, I think there's secularism, environmentalism, the new psychology of the self and Marxist wokeism. So if we look at them very briefly, why secularism? Well, what secularism does is it strips out the sacred. But what Christianity does is, with its use of the sacred, it defends human beings by saying, 
every human being is in the image of God. Every human being is sacred. You, if you if you damage or demean humanity, it's an offence against God Himself. Now you can't take this for granted. There are two areas in particular where this stripping out of the sacredness of human beings matters terribly. One is in the enormous and and, and terrible abortion industry, and the other is the way in which human beings become dispensable cogs within the capitalist machine. Now. The role of the church here is absolutely essential because without the sacredness of the human being, the threat to the integrity of people, to the value of people, is enormous. And Christianity can do this with its own resources of saying we are made by God, we are indeed the children of God, we're in his image. It is a blasphemy to destroy, to demean human beings without buying into any of the alternatives which are on the whole always political. The environmental issue that we have at the moment has become a, essentially a new religion. It's an extension of the old Canaanite fertility religion to get the earth to feed us. The sacred mother had sacrifices made to her. And this is, this is always a profoundly, deeply buried instinct in humanity. We're aware that if the earth malfunctions, we don't get to eat. It's a perfectly sensible instinct, really. But Christianity makes a distinction between worshipping, giving a priority to the environment that it doesn't deserve, treating it almost like a goddess. And one of the problems with this is, is that it, it distorts responsibility for the earth, turning it effectively into a religion and bringing, I think, elements or rather not challenging the elements of hysteria which have become part of the environmentalist movement to the extent that in the end things become again more important than people. Another very important area is the whole psychology of the self that's developed. A number of us put it down to, to Jung's ideas which are all to do with the development of the potentiality of the individual. Well some individuals don't have very much potential, it's just a fact, but part of the narcissistic concentration on the moving worship from God to the worship of the self, which is what it's done, has turned psychology and the self and again into a form of religiosity. We're back to this old chestnut of Chesterton's where if you don't worship God you'll worship almost anything. And in this point the self becomes one of those things we worship. Yet however much the self is worshipped, the level of anxiety about the worth of the self, which particularly hurts the young and the adolescents, stimulating mental illness amongst the young to undreamt of nightmarish heights. This is one of the things that Christianity is most powerful at doing because it tells us that our worth lies in the extent to which God loves us and it shows that the extent to which God loves us can be seen by Christ on the cross. We have a very powerful antidote to existential anxiety and it's one of the things that we should want to hear from our bishops because it's a place where people are hurting desperately their sense of their lack of self-worth and the way in which so much self-worth is expressed in terms of superficial sexual beauty. Again, this is a, a burden we can lift off people with the good news of Christianity. I think the final crisis is nouveau Marxism, and whether we call it cultural Marxism or neo-Marxism or Marxism 2.0, it's the same project that Marx began, this form of a just utopia where everybody gets a reasonable portion of the cake. Now, Christianity has got a wonderful strength in that it's always against injustice. But the task of being against injustice is a very different from one from creating justice. 
there's a great deal that we can do to remedy injustice, to hold people to account for various kinds of bullying and abuse of power. But the creation of justice, of the perfect society where everyone gets a fair share, is a form of utopianism that can't be realised. And what happens when you try to realise it? Well, you get the whole Marxist disaster of the 20th century where you have millions of people killed because quite soon after you move from a vision to ideological purity, you then start killing people who don't behave. It's extraordinary that our young don't know their history and don't know the danger of wokeness. After wokeness comes the inevitable culling of citizens and human beings. And so Christianity can talk about the way in which it understands the importance of, of protecting people, of holding people to account for the misuse of power, without engaging in this, this ludicrous redistribution of power along the lines of a, of a complex victimhood that's quite impossible to work out where people belong on it. So here are four areas where the church has an antidote to the crisis that our society is facing. And instead of hearing these areas addressed from a Christian point of view, from a prophetic point of view, challenging the status quo, what we have in our leaders, we hear it in Welby, we hear it in Mulally, and we certainly hear it in Cottrell, is the adoption of most of the, particularly the woke criteria, and trying to adapt Christianity to it, which it simply can't do and won't do. Why don't we hear them saying these things? Because they haven't either thought enough or they haven't had a, a profound enough education or because they're taking the easy way out. But either way, it spells the death of a kind of Christianity that isn't willing to be true to its roots and to confront those ideas, those ways of living, those competitive visions of human desire that it's faced with. Now, Gavin was talking a couple of days ago and since then, I've listened to his message two or three times because what you find here is something really inspiring and sadly unfamiliar these days. To put it crudely, a balance between Christian optimism and pessimism. A message that combines very acute social and intellectual analysis with irrepressibly enthusiastic evangelism. It moves beyond, or rather above, left and right something that Catholic social teaching used to do, until it was clumsily filleted, garnished with scraps of reheated Latin American Marxism and whatever's flavour of the month on progressive social media, and then served up to liberal power brokers by, you guessed it, Pope Francis. Now, imagine that a new Archbishop of York had said such stimulating things in his first interview, there'd be a real sense of excitement among Orthodox Christians that finally a leading bishop had broken free of the suffocating bien-pensant consensus. Instead, well, listen to this. Well, there, there is racism, racism in our society, and where it's explicit racism, we need to call it out. But there's another sort of racism, um, which I think can often be best likened to being like accent. You know, we all have the experience, particularly perhaps going to, going to North America, where you get there as an English person and people say, oh, I love your accent. Uh, and our response is usually, um, I, don't I speak normally, I don't have an accent. You're the one who has an accent. Um, and I think we've, we've grown up, white people uh, in this country, we've grown up thinking we are the normal ones. You know, we don't have an accent, we don't have a colour, other people have a colour. And I think the next thing that we need to do is understand um, that we have to approach 
these matters of race and racism in a new way, um, understanding it in its full and glorious diversity, not imagining that any one thing is normal. So we need to, we need to examine our own whiteness. Now, self-examination is a really important Christian discipline. Uh, so I want the church simply to examine itself um, so that we can become a much more loving um, and accepting and hospitable organization. And then, of course, we can have a voice in helping the world uh, face up to these issues. I'm sure some of you are thinking, that can't be the new Archbishop of York. Well, sorry, it is. What you've just heard is fatuous and creepy nonsense from beginning to end. Does Cottrell really think there's anything new about this concept of implicit racism? And what was that stuff about the full and glorious diversity of racism? Was it ironic or had he just forgotten how he started his sentence? He's buying into at least two complete fantasies here. The first is that the Church of England is riddled with racism. It's not. And the second is that if for the umpteenth time the CFB decides to examine its past and uncover all sorts of evidence of racism, the world is going to listen to it. Even if you're not an Anglican, the thought that the Archbishop of York should sound like a brain-dead functionary in some local council's equality and diversity department is incredibly depressing. But Archbishop Cottrell was speaking off the cuff in a live interview with Radio 4's appalling Sunday programme, and perhaps it's unfair to judge him on the basis of those comments. So, instead, let's take a closer look at the Yorkshire Post article, published to coincide with his enthronement, in which he sets out his stall. I'm now going to take a look at it with Gavin Ashenden. Cottrell begins by saying that despite the horrors and sufferings of the coronavirus pandemic and all the heartache we've experienced, there is an opportunity for us to think deeply about what kind of world we want to be. Now, I think even in that first sentence, there's a fundamental problem, and it's one that isn't resolved. What does Cottrell mean when he says this is an opportunity for us, who's us, to think deeply about what kind of world we, who's we, want to be. Over to Gavin. This is a a very odd phrase, a kind of cosmic existentialism, the kind of world we want to be. How does this work exactly? Does an archbishop think and the world changes? Does the Church of England think and the world changes? He, He doesn't tell us who the we is at any stage. But this really matters, even if one is thinking simply and all the more if one's thinking deeply. Does he know he hasn't defined his terms? Does, does he care? Who is the we and why does positive thinking have the effect he thinks it's going to have? Cultural continues, and I do mean world, not continent, not nation, not region, not even county, but world. I'm sorry, I'm finding it difficult to keep a straight face. COVID-19 is a global pandemic. It spread quickly through a world that moves quick. A world that moves quickly. It shows us how connected we are. I'm sorry. I shall compose myself. It also shows how the poor and the excluded suffer most. When we find a vaccine or even a cure, then that will, of course, be shared with the world. It will enable us to move on, but with our new sense of interconnectedness. I'm not going to re-record this. You're just going to have to put up with it. There's also the opportunity for us to face other ills that have endured for much longer and may actually be even harder to eliminate. 
Right. For grown-up reaction, Gavin. So here's a scope of his ambition. He deliberately makes this a global exercise. So this begins to feel like a form of self-referential egotism without boundaries. By what mechanism does his we thinking affect the whole world? Well, what is the gearage? The fact is there isn't any. There is no connection between our thinking and the world suddenly changing. So at this point, he shows a, a degree of shallowness that I'm, I'm afraid I'd, I'd expect to see located developmentally in the writing of a child between, between 9 and 11. Look, it's not we who are connected. What he's doing is he's describing the behaviour of a virus. Suddenly he follows with a non sequitur, the, the poor and the excluded. Who are the poor and the excluded, by the way? I mean, is this an absolute term or is it relative to different societies? Since he's talking about the whole world, what variety of subdivisions of inclusion and exclusion does he contemplate? Of course, the truth is he's not contemplating anything. He's just mouthing platitudes. I mean, when we find a vaccine, has he read anything about the width, variety and the complexity of the coronavirus? The common cold is a coronavirus. We've been looking for a vaccine forever and completely failing, given the complications of, of the variations of the rhinovirus. A vaccine or a cure? The, the, the childlike simplicity sounds just like wishful thinking rather than a medically informed adult. This is breathtakingly naive. Will a vaccine or a cure be shared with the whole world? Well, we might want it to be, but is that the reality of geopolitical conflict? Would the Chinese share a cure with the whole world? Um, the question is surely worth asking. Geopolitics are a complicated place, if we're thinking deeply, if we're thinking at all. So now Archbishop Cottrell, having been unable to resist the quintessential Anglican cliché moving on, gives us some idea of where we should be moving on to. He says, I'm thinking of prejudice and intolerance and the hatred and division it breeds. The Black Lives Matter movement, that didn't take him long, has alerted us to the terrible pandemic of racism. It is a different sort of virus. It attacks the heart, not the lungs. It requires a medicine that we have to find within ourselves and administer to ourselves. So now we move from the progress we've made in thinking about the virus, which actually is none, we haven't made any progress, to facing other ills. Well, what are these ills of the human condition? Fortunately for us, Cottrell takes the time in his deep thinking to define his terms for the first time. So what breeds these things? What causes prejudice, intolerance and hatred? This is absolutely worthy of a Christian archbishop's attention. The prophets alerted us to the cause of these distortions of behaviour. They called it sin. What is sin? An archbishop might very well choose to ask that question. How does it make human dysfunctionality worse? What would repentance look like? What's the Christian root out? What might we expect of God for individuals or communities that repented? But this isn't what the Archbishop is asking. Forget the prophets, forget Jesus, forget the Holy Spirit, forget the saints. He looks instead, in his profundity, to an anti-Christian, anti-capitalist, anti-family, Marxist political programme, Black Lives Matter. Some of us have been alive to the ills of racism long before BLM came on the scene. We found it and its antidote described by St Paul. We found the Christian community modelling a completely fresh paradigm of relationships across the races, across the power structures, across genders for two millennia. But Cottrell hasn't. He's woken up to it with Black Lives Matter for the first time. 
Well, in this study of non-sequiturs, we suddenly move to a, to a simile, racism as a virus. I can see why he's doing it. It, it catches the imagination. But suddenly, in, in this depth of thought, he's going to examine the delicate balance between what theologically we know as the Augustinian, the Pelagian view of human nature. Because he doesn't do that. Either he doesn't have theology or he's not willing to translate theology for the people he's talking to. He just chooses the usual Anglican heresy of Pelagius and tells us that we can fix this if we try hard. We can find the solution in ourselves. We can administer it in ourselves. This is classically sub-Christian. It's so sub-Christian one wonders what role Jesus, grace, the Holy Spirit, the cross and salvation play in his understanding at all, because it's well known, as particularly St Augustine articulated it so clearly, we can't do these things for ourselves. Well, the Archbishop does maybe address Gavin's point in the next paragraph when he says, As a Christian, my understanding of our responsibilities to each other as the human family comes from my faith in Christ, who... By teaching us that God is Father, also taught us that regardless of ethnicity, colour, class or background, we are sisters and brothers. In a caste-ridden patriarchal society, that was a very radical thing to say 2,000 years ago. And at this point I'm just going to break off and say something doesn't ring true here. Did Jesus actually say what the Archbishop attributes to him? Or was it St Paul? And then, having described this message as a very radical thing to say 2,000 years ago, Cottrell adds, sadly, it is just as radical today. No, it's not. Affirming the equality of the races and the genders is just about the most conventional thing you can say today. The only truly caste-ridden patriarchal societies to be found in the 21st century are in the developing world, in Africa and Asia and any criticism of those will immediately land you in hot water with Black Lives Matter. And I don't think it's a risk Cottrell's going to take. Cottrell continues, But in challenging us to look at each other differently and treat each other as sisters and brothers, and even organise the world as if it were a household, where we belong to each other and care about each other's needs, we can begin to see what the medicine might look like. Jesus put it very simply. He said, Love your neighbour as yourself. Please note, he didn't say love everyone. The two aren't quite the same. Loving everyone in a kind of general, abstract way that never demands any particular attention is comparatively easy. Loving your neighbour, that very particular someone who's next to you right now, is much more challenging and much more real. Well, I thought that last observation was fair enough, though if I've heard it once, I've heard it a hundred times. But here's Gavin's take. Well, grammar and thought have gone astray again here. What or who is challenging us? What is the actual nature of this universal sisterhood and brotherhood? Do we impose it on the Buddhists who don't share it? Do we impose it on the nihilists, the secularists? Where does the idea come from? On what terms can it be accessed? The answer seems to be almost a kind of Bob Dylan-esque, the answer my friend is blowing in the wind. For him, his solution has two parts. One, look differently to organize the world like a household. So here's an interesting foray into politics. Is this going to happen through the spread of democracy? How will the Chinese take to this invitation for a reordering of the global household? How will Iran take it or Saudi Arabia? Is this change going to happen through a theocratic dictatorship of Anglican archbishops? How's it going to happen? Well, we're back to a kind of local radio thought for the day standard. He has at least mentioned Jesus. That must be a good thing. 
it shows after all he's a Christian, he says. Obviously, he was in fact encouraging us to love everyone in his new grasp, sense of interconnectedness when we reorganise a global household. But now he's saying something different. Now he's telling us that that ambition is actually too difficult. We can't really love everyone. It's not possible. Though it's not clear whether it's more difficult to love the globe or your real neighbour, but he reaches the end of the road with this thought and doesn't help us reconcile these two contradictions he's brought together. In the rest of his article, the Archbishop turns to the subject of Yorkshire. He is, after all, writing in the Yorkshire Post, so fair enough. But he does sound a bit like a newly elected MP trying to ingratiate himself with his constituents. There's the inevitable reference to grit. Cottrell doesn't say there's an out so queer as folk. I suppose he'd prefer there's an out so trans as folk. But he does lay it on a bit thick. And he ends with this magnificent, laboured, thought-for-the-day metaphor. So, for my final bit of inspiration... What were the previous bits of inspiration? Let me turn to a particular feature, the dry stone walls that crisscross the landscape of the Yorkshire Dales. Only the other year, when I was staying at Scargill House in Wharfdale, so he's got the word Scargill in there, a person who made and repaired these walls told me that the art of dry stone walling requires you never to put a piece of stone down once you have picked it up. Rather than looking at the gap in the wall and then trying out one bit of stone after another to see which one fits, this really would waste energy, the dry stone waller walks across the whole canvas of the wall and, once having picked a stone up, looks for the place where it belongs and wait for it. Might this be a picture of the Yorkshire we want to become? One where everyone has a place. One where no one is discarded or put down. One where we work on a big canvas of inclusion, welcome, hospitality, and... Can you guess the last word? I think you can. Diversity. And at the end of the article, and it's laid out online so that it appears to be part of the article, there's an editor's note. And the editor of the Yorkshire Post says... First and foremost, and rarely have I written down these words with more sincerity, and I thought, oh, he's so impressed by the Archbishop that he's going to pay tribute to him, but no. It was the editor of the Yorkshire Post appealing quite desperately for money, for subscriptions, because the local newspaper industry is in the same sort of trouble as the Church of England. And I don't think that's a particularly laboured analogy. There are plenty of reasons, no need to go into them now, why the two institutions are dying together, as it were. Whether both or either of them can be saved isn't clear. But one thing's for certain. If they fall into the hands of the wrong management, then they really are doomed. And I've seen and heard enough already to conclude that the northern province of the Church of England has fallen into the wrong hands, as has the southern province, as has the Diocese of London, which is, of course, part of the southern province. I talked a few weeks ago about the process of suicide by secularisation that's being accelerated by bishops who make endless, futile attempts to regain a degree of influence in the public square, meaning, in practice, influence with liberal metropolitan power brokers, by telling them exactly what they think they want to hear. Only they're not listening. And after hearing what Stephen Cottrell has to say, can you blame them? Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. 
go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.